0: Chapter 5, Section 1, Continued, of Partial Portraits, by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rita Boutros. Chapter 5, Section 1, Continued, Robert Louis Stevenson. As it is not odd, but extremely usual, to marry, he deprecates that course in Virginibus Puerisque, the collection of short essays which is most a record of his opinions, that is, largely of his likes and dislikes. It all comes back to his sympathy with the juvenile, and that feeling about life, which leads him to regard women as so many superfluous girls in a boy's game." They are almost wholly absent from his pages, the main exception is Prince Otto, though there is a Clara apiece in the Rajah's diamond, and the pavilion on the links, for they don't like ships and pistols and fights. They encumber the decks and require separate apartments, and, almost worst of all, have not the highest literary standard. Why should a person marry when he might be swinging a cutlass or looking for a buried treasure? Why should he waste at the nuptial altar precious hours in which he might be polishing periods? It is one of those curious and, to my sense, fascinating inconsistencies that we encounter in Mr. Stevenson's mind, that though he takes such an interest in the childish life, he takes no interest in the fireside. He has an indulgent glance for it in the verses of the garden, But to his view, the normal child is the child who absents himself from the family circle in fact when he can, in imagination when he cannot, in the disguise of a buccaneer. Girls don't do this, and women are only grown-up girls, unless it be the delightful maiden, fit daughter of an imperial race, whom he commemorates in an inland voyage. Quote, A girl at school in France began to describe one of our regiments on parade to her French schoolmates, and as she went on, she told me, the recollection grew so vivid, she became so proud to be the countrywoman of such soldiers, that her voice failed her, and she burst into tears. I have never forgotten that girl, and I think she very nearly deserves a statue." To call her a young lady, with all its niminy associations, would be to offer her an insult. She may rest assured of one thing: although she never should marry a heroic general, never see any great or immediate result of her life, she will not have lived in vain for her native land. There is something of that in Mr. Stevenson when he begins to describe a british regiment on parade or something of that sort he too almost breaks down for emotion which is why i have been careful to traverse the insinuation that he is primarily a chiseler of prose if things had gone differently with him i must permit myself this allusion to his personal situation and i shall venture to follow it with two or three others he might have been an historian of famous campaigns a great painter of battle pieces of course however in this capacity it would not have done for him to break down for emotion although he remarks that marriage is a field of battle and not a bed of roses he points out repeatedly that it is a terrible renunciation and somehow in strictness, incompatible even with honor, the sort of roving, trumpeting honor that appeals most to his sympathy. After that step, there are no more by-path meadows where you may innocently linger, but the road lies long and straight and dusty to the grave. You may think you had a conscience and believed in God, but what is a conscience to a wife? To marry is to domesticate the recording angel. Once you are married there is nothing left for you, not even suicide, but to be good. How, then, in such an atmosphere of compromise, to keep honour bright and abstain from base capitulations? The proper qualities of each sex are eternally surprising to the other. Between the Latin and the Teuton races there are similar divergences, not to be bridged by the most liberal sympathy. It is better to face the fact, and know when you marry, that you take into your life a creature of equal if unlike frailties, whose weak human heart beats no more tunefully than yours." If there be a grimness in that, it is as near as Mr. Stevenson ever comes to being grim, and we have only to turn the page to find the corrective, something delicately genial at least, if not very much less sad. The blind bow-boy who smiles upon us from the end of terraces in old Dutch gardens laughingly hurls his bird-bolts among a fleeting generation but for as fast as ever he shoots the game dissolves and disappears into eternity from under his falling arrows this one is gone ere he is struck the other has but time to make one gesture and give one passionate cry and they are all the things of a moment that is an admission that though it is soon over the great sentimental surrender is inevitable And there is geniality, too, still, over the page, in regard to quite another matter. Geniality, at least, for the profession of letters, in the declaration that there is, quote, one thing you can never make Philistine natures understand, one thing which yet lies on the surface, remains as unseizable to their wit as a high flight of metaphysics namely that the business of life is mainly carried on by the difficult art of literature and according to a man's proficiency in that art shall be the freedom and fullness of his intercourse with other men Yet it is difficult not to believe that the ideal in which our author's spirit might most gratefully have rested would have been the character of the paterfamilias, when the eye falls on such a charming piece of observation as these lines about children in the admirable paper on Child's Play. Quote, if it were not for this perpetual imitation, we should be tempted to fancy they despised us outright, or only considered us, in the light of creatures, brutally strong and brutally silly, among whom they condescended to dwell in obedience like a philosopher at a barbarous court, quote. Section 2. We know very little about a talent till we know where it grew up and it would halt terribly at the start any account of the author of Kidnapped, which should omit to insist promptly that he is a scot of the scots two facts to my perception go a great way to explain his composition the first of which is that his boyhood was passed in the shadow of edinburgh castle and the second that he came of a family that had set up great lights on the coast His grandfather, his uncle, were famous constructors of lighthouses, and the name of the race is associated above all with the beautiful and beneficent tower of Scarivore. We may exaggerate the way in which, in an imaginative youth, the sense of the story of things would feed upon the impressions of Edinburgh, though I suspect it would be difficult really to do so. The streets are so full of history and poetry, of picture and song, of associations springing from strong passions and strange characters, that, for our own part, we find ourselves thinking of an urchin going and coming there as we used to think, wonderingly, enviously, of the small boys who figured as supernumeraries, pages, or imps, in showy scenes at the theatre. The place seems the background, the complicated set of a drama, and the children the mysterious little beings who are made free of the magic world. How must it not have beckoned on the imagination to pass and repass on the way to school under the castle rock, conscious, acutely yet familiarly, of the grey citadel on the summit, lighted up with the tartans and bagpipes of highland regiments? Mr. Stevenson's mind from an early age was furnished with the concrete Highlander, who must have had much of the effect that we nowadays call decorative. We have encountered somewhere a fanciful paper of our authors, in which there is a reflection of half-holiday afternoons, and, unless our own fancy plays us a trick, of lights red in the winter dusk, in the high-placed windows of the old town, a delightful rhapsody on the penny-sheets of figures for the puppet-shows of infancy, in lifelike position, and awaiting the impatient yet careful scissors." If landscapes were sold, he says in Travels with a Donkey, like the sheets of characters of my boyhood, one penny plain and twopence colored, I should go the length of twopence every day of my life. Indeed, the colour of Scotland has entered into him altogether, and, though, oddly enough, he has written but little about his native country, his happiest work shows, I think, that she has the best of his ability, the best of his ambition. Kidnapped, whose inadequate title I may deplore in passing, breathes in every line the feeling of moor and loch, and is the finest of his longer stories and Thrawn Janet, a masterpiece in thirteen pages, later republished in the volume of The Merry Men, is, among the shorter, the strongest in execution. The latter consists of a gruesome anecdote of the supernatural, related in the Scotch dialect, and the genuineness which this medium, at the sight of which in general the face of the reader grows long, wares in mr stevenson's hands is a proof of how living the question of form always is to him and what a variety of answers he has for it it would never have occurred to us that the style of travels with a donkey or virginibus Puerisque and the idiom of the parish of balweary could be a conception of the same mind "'If it be a good fortune for a genius to have had such a country as Scotland for its primary stuff, this is doubly the case when there has been a certain process of detachment, of extreme secularization. "'Mr. Stevenson has been emancipated. He is, as we may say, a Scotchman of the world.' none other i think could have drawn with such a mixture of sympathetic and ironical observation the character of the canny young lowlander david balfour a good boy but an exasperating treasure island the new arabian knights prince otto Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are not very directly founded on observation, but that quality comes in with extreme fineness as soon as the subject involves consideration of race. I have been wondering whether there is something more than this that our author's pages would tell us about him, or whether that particular something is in the mind of an admirer because he happens to have had other lights on it. It has been possible for so acute a critic as Mr. William Archer to read Pure High Spirits, and the gospel of the young man rejoicing in his strength, and his matutinal cold bath between the lines of Mr. Stevenson's prose and it is a fact that the note of a morbid sensibility is so absent from his pages they contain so little reference to infirmity and suffering that we feel a trick has really been played upon us on discovering by accident the actual state of the case with the writer who has indulged in the most enthusiastic allusion to the joy of existence We must permit ourselves another mention of his personal situation, for it adds immensely to the interest of volumes through which there draws so strong a current of life, to know that they are not only the work of an invalid, but that they have largely been written in bed, in dreary health resorts, in the intervals of sharp attacks. There is almost nothing in them to lead us to guess this, the direct evidence indeed is almost all contained in the limited compass of the silverado squatters in such a case however it is the indirect that is the most eloquent and i know not where to look for that unless in the paper called ordered south and its companion es triplex in virginibus Puerisque. it is impossible to read ordered south attentively without feeling that it is personal. The reflections it contains are from experience, not from fancy. The places and climates to which the invalid is carried to recover or to die are mainly beautiful, but, quote, in his heart of hearts he has to confess that they are not beautiful for him. He is like an enthusiast leading about with him a stolid indifferent tourist, there is someone by who is out of sympathy with the scene and is not moved up to the measure of the occasion, and that someone is himself. He seems to himself to touch things with muffled hands and to see them through a veil. Many a white town that sits far out on the promontory, many a comely fold of wood on the mountain side, beckons and allures his imagination day after day, and is yet as inaccessible to his feet as the clefts and gorges of the clouds. The sense of distance grows upon him wonderfully, and after some feverish efforts and the fretful uneasiness of the first few days, he falls contentedly in with the restrictions of his weakness. He feels, if he is to be thus tenderly weaned from the passion of life, thus gradually inducted into the slumber of death, that when at last the end comes, it will come quietly and fitly. He will pray for Medea when she comes let her either rejuvenate or slay the second of the short essays i have mentioned has a taste of mortality only because the purpose of it is to insist that the only sane behaviour is to leave death and the accidents that lead to it out of our calculations life is a honeymoon with us all through and none of the longest small blame to us if we give our whole hearts to this glowing bride of ours. The person who does so makes a very different acquaintance with the world, keeps all his pulses going true and fast, and gathers impetus as he runs, until, if he be running towards anything better than wildfire, he may shoot up and become a constellation in the end. Nothing can be more deplorable than to— FORGO ALL THE ISSUES OF LIVING IN A PARLOR WITH A REGULATED TEMPERATURE. Mr. Stevenson adds that, as for those whom the gods love dying young, a man dies too young at whatever age he parts with life. The testimony of A. triplex to the author's own disabilities is, after all, very indirect, it consists mainly in the general protest not so much against the fact of extinction as against the theory of it the reader only asks himself why the hero of travels with a donkey the historian of alan breck should think of these things His appreciation of the active side of life has such a note of its own that we are surprised to find that it proceeds in a considerable measure from an intimate acquaintance with the passive. It seems too anomalous that the writer who has most cherished the idea of a certain free exposure should also be the one who has been reduced most to looking for it within and that the figures of adventurers who at least in our literature of to-day are the most vivid should be the most vicarious the truth is of course that as the travels with a donkey and an inland voyage abundantly show the author has a fund of reminiscences he did not spend his younger years in a parlor with a regulated temperature A reader who happens to be aware of how much it has been his later fate to do so may be excused for finding an added source of interest, something indeed deeply and constantly touching in this association of peculiarly restrictive conditions with the vision of high spirits and romantic accidents, of a kind of honorably picaresque career. Mr. Stevenson is, however, distinctly, in spite of his occasional practice of the gruesome, a frank optimist, an observer who not only loves life, but does not shrink from the responsibility of recommending it. There is a systematic brightness in him which testifies to this, and which is, after all, but one of the innumerable ingenuities of patience." What is remarkable in his case is that his productions should constitute an exquisite expression, a sort of whimsical gospel of enjoyment. The only difference between An Inland Voyage, or Travels with a Donkey, and The New Arabian Nights, or Treasure Island, or Kidnapped, is that in the later books the enjoyment is reflective, though it stimulates spontaneity with singular art whereas in the first two it is natural and as it were historical end of chapter 5 section 1 continued robert louis stevenson